0: Hello and welcome to the uk personal finance show with phil anderson the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need this is episode 149 where in a moment we welcome another guest expert this time lisa seanville of block property management as we look into the world of serviced accommodation that's in just a second as i say but please bear in mind if you have a general financial query you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. And you can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows because in our programmes today, we've featured lots of stuff, mortgages, investing, wills and powers of attorney and loads more. You name it, we've probably done it. And last time we looked at With Profits Investments. I think I got that right. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll find us there. As I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show, and then that way you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis. Joining me this week in Phil's absence is Cheryl Horn, a colleague at Phil Anderson Financial Services. Hi, Cheryl.
1: Hi, John. Hi. Good to be back. This is the second
0: one I've done, so... Good to have uh, you on again. Yes, thanks. My mind starts to forget a little about, round about the 150 show mark into the the podcast archive, but I'm fairly certain service accommodation isn't a topic that we've looked at, at least not in its own right. Joining us as a guide into this world is Lisa Schonville of Block Property Management. Thanks for coming on the show as our guest, Lisa. Maybe before we delve into the topic, you could tell us a little bit about your own background and, and work history.
2: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So when I left school at the age of 17, I got a job in uh, High Street Bank, worked my way up in the bank. By the age of 21, I was a bank manager. I then had my two children. It didn't quite fit in with my, my plans. So I left that and started up a sensory development business for babies and parents. So basically, I used to... Play with babies every single day, singing songs and nursery rhymes and uh, playing with ribbons and scarves and stuff. It was great fun. However, I I grew that business, which was fabulous. I grew up to be the most successful uh, sensory development franchise in the UK at the time. And I was an international trainer and I was coaching and training people all over the UK. But it consumed my life. So what I thought was going to be a part-time job to, uh, soon worked out to be uh, 60, 70 hours a week. Wow. Cut a long story short, I then sold that business and I started up a cleaning company because I thought that that would have been easier. A massive difference, a big big change for me. But <laughs> I thought it would have been easier to manage. Um, and initially I started cleaning for serviced apartments or serviced accommodations. So this is how it all came to life. And at the time, one of the management companies that I was cleaning for, the director of that company actually approached me and said he was going to be starting uh, another business venture and he was wondering if I'd be interested in going into business with him. So this business venture was serviced accommodation management, but it was for blocks of units. So it was for large residential developments, hence where the name block came from. So I said yes to the opportunity, jumped in, not really knowing what I was doing. And here we are, four years down the line, still here. <laughs> and, oh. and everything's going well.
0: Explain to something I for anyone that isn't entirely sure, what exactly is service accommodation?
2: Yeah. So so The real name or the the correct name, if you like, for it is is short-term lets. So it's typically from one one night to one year. So the difference is that it's, it's guests that would be staying in the property and not tenants. So it's more like a hospitality business as opposed to, you know, as a property strategy, obviously, but it's very much focused around hospitality. So you're letting out your property on a short-term rental basis. So they would guests would arrive and they would stay for maybe two or three nights or they might stay for two or three weeks or two or three months. And then they would check out again and your next lot of guests would arrive.
1: Okay, so how does somebody get started in serviced accommodation? How did you actually start the whole process? So, well, if, if that someone could be someone like me,
2: um, I've actually got my own serviced accommodation property as well. But I started because I had a a buy-to-let. So I was in the buy-to-let market for about 10 years. And over that 10-year period, I only had three tenants. So for me, that was really good. However, what I found that was when when the tenants left... I had to refurb my property from top to bottom every single time. So I would maybe go in and there would be holes in walls. There was was handles missing from my doors. There was doors, all my internal doors removed. My washing machine had been vacated out of the property. So I used to experience these things. But having said that, it was only three tenants. But I just thought to myself, I don't know how much longer I can continue with. The upheaval and the money that was involved in it. So I then started my own short-term let. So that's when I, I turned my buy-to-let property into a serviced accommodation. So for me, it was never, it was never my long-term plan, but I was getting frustrated with the issues that I was experiencing with the, the traditional buy-to-lets. So I thought I'm going to try this as a short-term let and see what happens. And that was three over three years ago and I've ne- I've never looked back. It's been the best decision that I made that I've made. But um it could be perhaps an investor that's looking to exit the buy to let market, or it could be someone that's looking to build up their property portfolio and earn obviously additional income in addition to what it is that they're already doing.
1: So would you say it's a good way to boost the returns compared to a normal buy-to-let? Yeah,
2: well, again it' There's pros and cons, isn't there? Mm-hmm. There's pros and cons with both. But for my personal experience, yes. So typically, just to kind of put you in the picture, i give you some numbers because I know that people like to to know really what is the difference between a buy to and a service accommodation. Typically, you would look to earn around three times more than what you would in a buy-to-let if you go down the service accommodation route. However, that's not guaranteed. So you could have you could have a month where you don't have any guests and no revenue coming into your business, but then the following month you could have a hundred percent occupancy at one hundred and fifty pounds a night. So your so your revenue is is obviously much more. But over a twelve month period, typically you should expect to earn roughly three times more than what you would in a traditional buy to let.
0: Already, we're we're starting to to hear that there are, you know, I mean if you if you're in a buy to let, then perhaps someone is looking to move into that area for work or whatever. Whereas in the short term accommodation, perhaps they're going to a gig and or they, they need to be in a a certain area on a certain day or for a certain week. There are different defining reasons for why they would use each type of property. I'm wondering what sort of properties do well for serviced accommodation, Lisa.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you are spot on, John. And it is it's 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 a very much a different type of clientele. So we could be looking at a holiday by the sea. So a nice, you know, lovely, you know, cottage or, or villa by the sea, or we could be looking at, in my case, and I'll keep reverting back to it, but in my case, a three bed end terraced council property completely different properties, completely different target audience. So for for if you're looking at a, perhaps a three-bed property, ex-council, you know, and, and this, this kind of type of area, I've got one in Hamilton, which is just outside Glasgow. If you're looking at that type of property, then three beds or more tend to work really, really well. And the reason they work well is because they're targeted predominantly for the contractor market, the corporate market, or insurance claims. So, for example, if we have a guest who lives in Hamilton and they've had, an, you know, they've had an incident in their home, it could be a fire or a flood, or they're getting massive refurb works. They then have to move out of their property. That could be for two or three or four months. They want to live local, but they you know, they'll then go to the insurance company, and the insurance company will put them up. And a serviced accommodation or a short term let. So that type of property would work well for something like that, or you might have contractors working in the area, so travelling from down south, or you know, or any, anywhere in the world, really, coming over here, working for three, three weeks, three months, nine months, and they're looking for somewhere to stay. So instead of them looking at a hotel where they have to make, all, where they have to eat out all the time, they can't make any of their own meals. It's not like a home from home they would then look at a short term let like a serviced accommodation and they would stay in a property like this so for for the, that type of market the contractor corporate insurance market typically i would say the ones that perform the best are three three bedrooms or more and that's because they, they can accommodate families or they can accommodate multiple contractors at any one time. So if you've got a three bed, you can have three contractors in the one property.
0: Yeah, when you when you're talking about things like that, and and the the examples that you used there were the likes of insurance firms, perhaps putting up a family who've been you know flooded out of their home, let's say, yeah. or contractors from down south coming into this part of the world and they need somewhere to stay for a relatively long period of time. When you're talking about that, do you find that you have insurers contacting you as a company because you're you're on the map? Or do you have to go make inroads with them if you're someone who has service accommodation that's just starting out?
2: Yeah, so a bit of both, I would definitely say. So because we've got multiple properties, it's it's probably much easier for us as a management company to form connections and relationships with companies like this because they tend to be they're looking for volume. So they're maybe not just looking for one or two properties here or there. They could be looking for, you know, this morning, for example, we've just had an inquiry for someone looking for 17 rooms right. so to, to, to host 17 people. So if you're an individual one-man band, for you to then maybe get in with those typical insurance or corporate companies or larger contractor companies might be a little bit more challenging of course it can still be done but when you're a management company it tends to be a little bit easier to get in and with them because you've got perhaps a you know a kind of batch of of, of properties Mm -hmm. sitting there waiting for them if you like
0: I think you're, you're kind of um, sort of treading on the toes and answering the, the the next question I was going to ask you as well, which are, what, what are the benefits of, of sort of using a management company such as yours that you kind of explained one away there, but give us the, the full scenario.
2: Yeah, yeah. So obviously with a management company tends to be, I guess, of course, it depends what what offer you opt for. So you could have a completely hands off service, which ultimately means that you're handing your property over to this management company and they're looking after your property 24 hours a day. 365 days a year. So we have guests checking in and out on Christmas Day. That means that it's the management company's responsibility to ensure that property's cleaned and turned around and ready for the next guest checking in. If the management company gets a phone call at 11 o'clock at night saying that the wi fi is not working, the management company deal with that. If they get a phone call at two in the morning saying the guest has just returned from a night out and they've lost their key, it's the management company that deal with that. Whereas if you're if you're looking after the property yourself, you're the one that, ha, that that's all false, unfortunately. So if you're out for a nice meal on a Saturday evening and you're having a glass of wine and you get a phone call at 11 o'clock at night, you have to respond to that. Whereas when you have a management company, the idea is that it is completely hands-off. Of mm. course, you then pay a commission typically to that management company that look after your property. Very similar to if you were paying a letting agent to look after your, your, your buy to let, but you're paying your, a management company to look after your, your short-term let. So there, there's many benefits. But for me, I find that those are the main reasons that, that people or clients come to us because they do want hands-off. They want to enjoy the revenue that the property can produce and the benefits of it. But they don't want involved in the day-to-day guest communications, phone calls, guest vetting, processing payments. They don't want to have to deal with cleaning teams, linen hire, laundry hire. They don't oh. want to have to do any of that.
0: No, none of that. None of that.
1: <laughs> what kind of insurances do you need if you're if you're going into service accommodation, if you're offering service accommodation?
2: Yeah, so you will need specialist insurance and you'll also need something that is very important now in in Scotland is a licence. So over and above insurances, I would say that's one of the biggest considerations that that people entering the short-term rental market need to consider if they're purchasing in Scotland is that they will need a licence to operate, which I think is a good thing because it will eliminate anyone not doing this properly. So there's, there is people out there, like any business, who won't be operating their short-term rental properly. So they may not have the, the correct insurances, Cheryl, that you mentioned, in place. They may not have their certifications in pa- place for their electrical testing or other gas safety testing. So this licence application that's now come into play means that, that we are now regulated and that we have to have this in place before we're allowed to operate a short-term rental in Scotland.
0: I always say to Phil whenever I'm doing this show with him that I'm not afraid to ask a stupid question. So here come a couple. <laughs> and it's it's things that cross my mind. I'm not I'm not from a financial background at all, but it's things that cross my mind as I'm listening to you talking about these things. And the short term let you said initially, it could be from one day you said up to one year. Is that is that actually a, a finite period? I mean, is that is that where it goes to? Is that, can you go up to one year in this type of accommodation?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you know, I,
0: Yeah, yeah. because what I'm thinking about is when it comes to things like utility bills and council tax and, you know, it's all very well saying, right, you're in there for a year and you're on a let and you're paying them. But how does it work when it comes to, you know, 15, 20, 500 people staying in your property in one year? Presumably you're picking yeah. up those bills.
2: You're you're, you're correct. You're absolutely spot on. So we do, as a a serviced accommodation business, not as a management company, but as an individual operating a serviced accommodation, you are responsible for all of the utility bills, so gas, electricity, Wi-Fi, any, any bills that come with that property, you're responsible for so that's why it's very important that when you are doing your due diligence or you're looking at a property for a potential essay, that you need to consider the fact that you are going to be responsible for these bills. So you need to factor that in to your, your, your nightly rate, if you like, you know. So you're also responsible for the um, ensuring that your cleaning team is paid. So if, for example, what we what we try to present to our clients as, or recommend to our clients is that we pass the cleaning costs on to guests. So let's say you have someone staying for two nights if and they're paying £100 per night. Typically, they would pay £200 to stay in that accommodation. However, we don't want the the landlord or the owner of that property to be responsible for having to then pay the cleaning team out of that £200 what we do is we add the cleaning costs onto the top of that £200. So the guests would typically then pay, for example, £270. So that that £70 that we charge over and above the nightly rate goes directly to the cleaning team. And that means that they take care of perhaps all your linen and your laundry, your top-up of your consumable items and ensuring the property's cleaned. So even although it's an additional cost, As a management company, we recommend to our clients that this is how we operate and and pass that fee on to guests because they are staying in a serviced accommodation, which is classed as a basically like a home from home. They expect it now in this market. It's it's to be expected that guests will pay for cleaning fees. So that's a cost that hopefully they, they don't have to factor in, but they do need to consider that it will be a cost.
0: You mentioned earlier that you were into block property management with a partner, but also that you had your own service accommodation business now as well. If someone's starting from scratch and they've never been in this world before, does it take long to set up a service accommodation business?
2: So, no, I, I don't think so. Obviously, if you've if you've got a, a, a property already sitting there that's perhaps a, a buy to late at the moment, you do need to consider the, the licence application. That's going to be the longest thing that you'll you need to take into consideration. And that's that's based on each individual council. So bear in mind, I'm only talking about Scotland here. There's no licence requirements in England as yet, but we're lucky to have it here in Scotland. So you have to take that into consideration and each council is going to be different. So you could have a council that might process your application in, in four weeks. But you could then have another council that might take three or four months to process your application, so that can be the biggest barrier of of how quickly you can get started in serviced accommodation. Obviously, if you get a license in place and it comes through quickly, you need to then consider furnishing that property because you are responsible for ensuring that your guests experience that home from home because it's not just a case of putting in big furnishings such as a sofa, dining table and, 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 and beds. You have to consider, do your guests have pots and pans and cutlery and crockery? Do they have salt and pepper? Have they got, you know, linen? Have they got towels? Do they have a toilet brush? Do they have a bin? Do, do they do You need to consider all of these things? So if you're going to prepare all of that yourself, that can sometimes take a little bit of time sourcing all of that, all of those furnishings as well and getting it set up. So, yeah, probably I would say around three months is worth the new licensing applications now in place. Probably about three months is is to be expected to set up an AC.
0: Okay, I'm going to bring you both in on this next one because I'm sure you you know this one as well, Cheryl. Do you need a specialist mortgage for service accommodation? Lisa, I'll come to you first on this and, and then... Cheryl, you can sort of cover it off for us. What's your experience and knowledge of this part of the equation, Lisa?
2: Yes, you absolutely do need... It's a different type of mortgage. So I'm not a specialist in mortgages, but Cheryl will definitely be able to keep you right with that. But yeah, ultimately the answer is yes.
1: There are, on the market at the moment in Scotland, I would say there's only about two or three that do holiday lets. And I think this is where maybe a lot of people do get confused because they'll come in and they'll, they'll say they want to buy a property they want to do a holiday let, and could they go with like Subnat West, to offer standard by to lets, and those kind of companies? They're not in that market. <laughs> and I think it is something that will probably have to change because I know what I'm finding is a lot of my existing landlords, with maybe ten properties, and I've got quite, you know, I've got quite a few landlords with a portfolio of properties, are starting to move across into this business, and it is something that I'm looking at myself <laughs> because I've got two. And with all the changes that have been coming in on on the finance side of things, as far as the government have been concerned with the stamp duty, etc., it's making more sense and more tax efficiency to do it that way. So, yes, you do need specialist advice. At the moment, there's not a huge amount, but there are a few. But they they do look for a substantial deposit, typically 25 to 30 percent deposit to go into that market.
0: Just a follow-up question on that, Cheryl. You said that there are a lot more people coming across into this business from, from where they are. Do you think the government is regulating that deliberately to try and get them to do that for any reason?
1: To be quite honest, I think the government are probably going to try and stop the Airbnb and the service accommodation as well. Mm-hmm. I think they're just trying to find ways of making money out of us. But they they changed, the um, buy a, a property and additional dwelling supplement is now added on. So instead of where you used to pay, three percent it's now six percent so it's an additional three percent and so if you've got a second property at all if you're buying a second property at all you now have to pay that they also stopped on the, the buy to let market you used to be able to offset your mortgage interest payments they were tax deductible you can't do that anymore and i know for a fact we'll touch on that in a, in a, a later bit that you, you can on a serviced accommodation hmm. property
0: yeah, I, I guess the, the big Hallmark names, and Cheryl mentioned one there, in, in the sort of public consciousness for this type of thing, or Airbnb and, and Booking.com, how do you differ from those guys, Lisa? What What is it that makes you special that means someone comes to you instead of them?
2: We still use Airbnb and Booking.com. So those are classed mainly as marketing portals. So that's right. where we would typically market your property. So we still very much use them. And I think that they are essential to a successful um, SA business. And the reason being is that these, pla- no, no matter how hard you try, you are never going to be able to compete with these big companies.
0: Hmm.
2: So they're very, very useful. However, they, what they, they, they do take a percentage of your booking. So, for example, if you get a £1,000 booking through an Airbnb or booking.com portal, you can expect to pay about 15% plus VAT to them. So, around 18% will go to Airbnb. The good thing is that if you're getting bookings through these platforms all the time, you're going to then get lots of reviews. If you get lots of reviews on these platforms, you're going to move right up to their first page. So when people are searching for a property in that area, you're going to be right up there, especially if your property is getting booked on a regular basis. Hmm. Where a management company comes in is, even though we use these, these companies, are Airbnb, Booking.com, Verbo, et cetera, to market your property, What we want to do is try and take guests off of these portals to save on these fees. But you do need it, especially in the initial stages of building your business, because you do want to get the good reviews. But as a management company, our job is then to try and convert them from booking on Airbnb and get them to come directly to us, because that will save you 15 to 18% straight away. So that's why we're trying to form relationships with Contractors directly, or corporate companies, or insurance companies, where we don't have these big portal fees to pay, and we're, we're obviously then the landlord or the property owner is making more money.
0: So they're they're effectively they're like the Uber, if you like. Uber are not a taxi company; they're a system that allows you to book a taxi in the same way. Airbnb don't have property; they they just have yes. a facility where you can shop for for staying somewhere on a short term basis. Again, the occupancy levels might be an issue, Lisa. You said this earlier with a lot more sort of short-term lets, but from what I can see to be the average cost per night, it, it balances out with it being constantly occupied. So if mm-hmm. you're comparing it to a monthly rental, even with a, a free period in there, what sort of occupancy levels will people get from service accommodation and what should someone be aiming for in terms of yeah. income? said about three times as much over 12 months, but you know, what, what are we looking at?
2: Yeah, so again, depends depends on the, the property as well. But what something to consider is not to get too caught up in occupancy levels, because you could have a property that's a really high-end property that is, you, you know, that, that you've decorated very well. You might have an interior designer, you know, um, do it all for you and and you're maybe marketing that that for two or three hundred pounds per night, you then might have you know, another property that is targeted predominantly for the contractor market. So you don't have to have very nice, fancy designer, you know, appliances or or coffee machines and nice sofas, etc. It has to be basic and done to a good standard, obviously. But the, 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 the nightly rate for that might be £100 per night. So if you're marketing a property at £100 per night, you know that you maybe need to have seventy or eighty percent, ninety percent occupancy for it to really be worth your while. Of course, that depends on the value of the property and the, you know the return on investment. But with the property that's going for two or three hundred pounds per night, you might only need fifty percent occupancy to be making more money than someone who's maybe getting ninety percent occupancy. So the occupancy can vary depending on the standard of the property or your target audience ultimately and and who you're marketing to. But what I would say is when you're looking at numbers across the board, I would always recommend that if you're not breaking even at around 40% occupancy, it's probably not worth your while. So that's across the board. So whether you've got a property that's worth a quarter of a million and, you know, it's going for £300 per night, or you've got a property that's worth £50,000 50, and it's going for 80 or £90 pounds per night, typically, if you're not covering all your costs at 40% occupancy, it's probably not a solid SA deal. I, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend it. There might be other people that would. For my clients, I would always say to them, make sure that your costs are covered around 40%. Okay. Are there any other downsides to serviced accommodation then as opposed to?
0: Oh, yeah, there there
2: is. Yeah, absolutely, Cheryl. Like like everything, there, there is going to be downsides. So one of the main downsides is that it's not guaranteed. So you could have that property and you might launch that property and you've got all this enthusiasm and passion and energy and you're excited about it. We put it out there to market and, you know, the first month goes really, really well. And then the second month, you only have one guest staying for two nights. So that could be expected. So you need to understand that it, that it can vary. Unless uh, we're securing really good long-term bookings for your property, it is going to fluctuate. So it can be in the summer months, for example, normally in the summer months, most properties perform exceptionally well across the board, whether they're holiday lets or just normal properties like the, you know, the council property that I was talking about. They still perform very, very well over the summer. But if when you're starting to head towards into the winter months, you you're not going to get, or you may not get, the same level of bookings, and your nightly rate may have to be reduced. You might need to bring that nightly rate down in order to encourage bookings. For that property, but again, so that's where a management company comes in because ideally, what they're doing is they're out there sourcing, trying to get longer term bookings for you, especially over the the kind of winter months. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest downsides of of, of SA that it's not you can't say I'm going to be guaranteed a thousand pounds a month every single month because one month you could get it and then the next one you might get a hundred pounds. And what would be the advantages then? So the advantages for me, speaking from personal experience, the biggest advantage for me was that we have guests in the property, not tenants, which means that effectively they have no rights. So they can't decide that they're going to stay in the property. If they cause any damage to the property, you can charge it to them. So you've already got their card details. If you if your cleaner arrives when that guest checks out and there's a hole in the wall, you know that guest has caused that destruction. So you can charge that on to the guest. So you've always got eyes and ears on your property. So because you've got your cleaning team going in on a regular basis, if there is any maintenance issues, it's getting picked up and rectified straight away. So you're never going to be not getting into that property, you know, for six months or a year just for a, a six monthly or annual inspection. There's people going into it all the time to check on it, which means that your the standard and quality of your property is always maintained. And and that's important because guests expect a certain standard with serviced accommodation. So it has to be immaculate and well looked after all the time. Otherwise, the next guest that arrives is going to leave a bad review and bad reviews are detrimental to your business. So nobody wants that. So you always want to make sure that you've your your is well looked after. So for me, that's a big advantage because there's someone always checking in your property on a regular basis. So there should never be any massive surprises or massive refurb work needing done because it should be getting picked up on a weekly basis.
1: Okay, I'm just gonna ask you another question then because obviously <laughs> I touched on it earlier on and I was mentioning it to John earlier before you came in. I have two lets two bedroomed by-to-lets. One of them is just outside of the city of Aberdeen, um fully furnished. I've had them 12 years now. The other one is in Northern Ireland. Wow. in a little village in Northern Ireland because that's where I'm originally from. So it is something that, I mean, you mentioned three beds were probably a wee bit more easier to rent. But how do you find the two bed in a town or a city? Is that yes. quite, quite a good
2: thing as well? Or Absolutely. I mean, we've got properties ranging from studios, one beds, right up to six bed apartments. So and 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 they all perform, well, I'm going to say confidently that they actually perform really well. We tend to only take on properties that we believe we can get to perform. If you come, if a client comes to us with a property and it's happen, it happens on a monthly basis, they'll come to us and they'll say, we want to turn this into an SA, you know. Here's, here's my thoughts, here's pictures, here's videos, or can you go out and see it? Here's information about the location. We'll do our due diligence. And if we think that we cannot get your property to perform, we won't take it on. So that's I think that that's important because it's, it's not beneficial for anyone. So if you were to come to me with a two bed and I looked at Cheryl and I said, I don't really think that'll perform well or I don't think that I could get it to perform, I will tell you up front, However, in Aberdeen, we've actually got quite a few properties in Aberdeen, and most of those properties are two beds. So I've had properties in Aberdeen since early 2019, and even although what we've experienced is not the norm for serviced accommodation, but we're experiencing 100% occupancy across multiple units in Aberdeen, and we have done... For the last three plus years. Now, that's not to say that if you come to me with a two bed property that I could guarantee you 100 percent occupancy for the next two or three years. But but I do know that there is demand for properties and two beds can, can perform just as well as, as three beds.
0: Just a, a quick question on that occupancy rate in the northeast of Scotland that you're mentioning there. Do you think that's to do with the offshore industry? Because you get guys working three on and three off, so there's always going to be someone looking for serviced accommodation.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of our clients that's working in that area do work offshore. Yeah. So we, we've formed relationships with their companies, and ultimately what happens is you might have... Two two contractors living in that property, but they're working offshore for for three weeks and on a rota basis. We've got some on, some off, so they're switching. Mm-hmm. So they they're using their property as a means to to service, you know, the or, or provide accommodation for their workers when they are back on on dry land. Okay, but it um, does happen though, in, in other areas. Sorry, John, it does. Yeah, you know, like it does happen in the we, like at, We've got a property just outside Glasgow. It's a three bed and it's an ex-council as well. But we've had the students in that property for four or five months now Mm. from Norway. So coming over, studying and exploring Scotland and, you know, they're looking for somewhere to stay. So that's a good four or five month secure booking from three students in that property. So even although it's not like next to, or maybe targeting the oil industry, there is going to be other aspects or, or considerations that you can take into account for when you are looking at properties.
0: Cheryl, let me come to you on this one finally. <laughs> How does it work in terms of tax?
1: Well, my understanding is that serviced accommodation, short-term holiday lets are taxed as commercial property, which means it's much less than your standard buy-to-let tax. And you can also claim mortgage interest payments against it, where mortgage interest payments are tax deductible, unlike the standard buy-to-lets. And capital allowances such as boiler repair, new boiler, boiler repairs, anything needing fixed, they're also tax tax deductible as well. So it is very tax advantageous compared to the buy-to-let market as well. I would say, and as I say, a lot of people are shifting across because of that reason, because the government have made it more difficult. Also, one of the things, I don't know if I could ask that question, actually, while I'm on. One of the things recently that we've had in Scotland for landlords is a, a, a freeze on the, the rent, <laughs> capping the rent at no more than 3% in one year. Obviously, I don't think that would apply in the, the service accommodation side. <laughs> so that's another adv- advantage as far as I can see as well.
0: Yep. So your understanding of the, of the, uh, the industry, as is, is you've experienced it as well, Lisa?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when you're dealing with guests and not tenants, because they're not entering into a rental contract with you, they're they're merely guests of your property. It's like checking into a hotel. Mm. So you can ultimately charge whatever you want. Not that you would, but it has to be obviously in line for you to be able to fill that property. It has to be in line with, you know, what's happening around you. But yeah, you can you can charge ultimately whatever you want. So if you want to add value to to your property by you want to charge more sorry as a nightly rate, you can add value to it by introducing things like a hot tub or, or a coffee machine. A coffee machine, even though it might only be £100 to buy, can actually increase your occupancy by about 14%. So some things can really add value to your property or be attractive. So that allows you to perhaps even increase that nightly rate slightly. And by increasing that nightly rate by 5 or £10 or 5 or 10%, can be a massive difference over the course of a
1: twelve-month period. And I was also thinking as well, with the interest rates going up, that again, that's something that a lot of my landlords are now experiencing. That the rental return on on the the lease agreements that they've got out there is not really covering what the new mortgage payments are. And obviously, on serviced accommodation, even if the mortgage rates were to increase, the commercial mortgage rates were to increase, you can just put your put your nightly fee up. Yeah.
2: you know, yeah, I, you know, and that—that's what I've done. Is I keep going back to this property that I've got, this three-bed property. But it's literally like what I used to be making on that property was about five hundred and fifty pounds, of what, or what I was charging as a rental. Five hundred and fifty pounds was coming into me on a monthly basis for a, a normal buy-to-let. Now that same property that's valued at about 100,000, just to kind of give you a perspective, typically brings in Top line, of course, about £3,000 a month. So that's a massive difference. Even when I do pay my mortgage, which I was having to pay anyway as a buy to let, even after I pay my gas and electricity, my Wi-Fi, any other overheads or utility bills or cost management fees, because I charge also charge a management fee to myself, even after paying all of that, I'm still making a lot more than I was in a, in a buy to let. But again, that, that can vary.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Now, Phil is uh, is very keen on trying to help you with your queries. So if ever you want to email a question to us, please do. Uh, and as always, we can ask them anonymously if you wish. Let's get on to this week's contact details coming up in a 2nd to give it to you after this. This first one's from Alice who says, Hi, Phil. With the rate of inflation coming down, will this be mirrored with a reduction in mortgage rates? Cheryl.
1: Yes, Alice, I do believe it will be. We do need the rate of inflation to come down. And what you typically see if you look back history, I've been a mortgage advisor a long time, is that once that happens, the rates do follow suit. However, we don't think the minute we're, we're kind of mulling over this one, we think it'll maybe be towards the middle of next year before we see any real rate reduction. In fact, we'll probably see them going up one more time is what's being spoken about. But we reckon by towards the end of this year, beginning and next, we'll start to see as inflation will drop, then the mortgage interest rates will also follow suit and drop a slightly slower basis maybe to start with. But, yeah, we do see them coming down.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely good news. This is just a follow-up, Cheryl. I mean, we had them ridiculously low for, well, actually, probably the lifetime of my kids in in, in real terms. They were ridiculously low. Do you think they'll come down as low as that ever again?
1: I personally don't think that they're well We think that it'll probably sit between Between three and four okay. Would be a healthier area to be sitting in However, we if we do have a new government That may start to change things as well So a case of watch this space But I think they were ridiculously low for too long yeah. We'll maybe have them low for a shorter period But they were too long And we knew that the bubble was going to burst at some point It had to
0: Yes, we just enjoyed it while well it last <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> I do remember the days of eight and nine percent though which were typical mm. back in the early 90s I was I was in the market then and you just if you were a first- time buyer it didn't really matter as much because you didn't know any different but it's those people that are coming off the lower fixed rates that are really finding it quite difficult and I think I was listening to the, the news the other day where they were saying that affordability calculators with the lenders had all factored all this in that if the rates went up but I think what they didn't consider, was if everything else went up alongside it. And that's where it's not just the mortgage rates that have gone up, it's the price of foods, the price of electricity, price of diesel. It's all gone up at the same time, which has been a catalyst of, of mm. a lot yeah, of
0: people. Of, of what's, yeah, of what's going on. Uh, next up, here's one from Kelly and Brotty Ferry who says, Hi, Phil, I've been offered help with my mortgage by my lender, including six months interest only payments to ease the burden financially in the interim. Is this a good option? I think is this something that's been instigated by the, the, the government?
1: It, it, it has been instigated by the government and it's a wee bit have a bone of a contention because if you are offered interest only payments by your lender, what they're effectively doing is they're going to add on the bit that you would you would not be repaying the capital portion to the end of your mortgage. So it's not that you'll not be paying it you will be paying it and you'll possibly pay your mortgage over a longer period of time what i'm finding is probably working a wee bit better for people now that when they're coming back and we're looking at their income and their outgoings again is if you can stretch the term for a couple of years rather than do an interest only payment and keep your costs down that way then that would be the preferable option and then in a few years time you can reduce it again yeah
0: I think I got a letter in that, that sort of listed almost like bullet point fashion. You could do this, 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 or this. And I, I guess the, the, the main thing, rather than going back to your lender, is is to ask a financial advisor what the best option might be.
1: Yeah, because we'll have a look at your total outgoings, your, what's what's coming in each month, what's going out each month. We'll look at ways that we can try and save you money. Um, it could be that insurance is you haven't shopped around in a few years and you need to look at your life insurance or protection insurance and we can maybe reduce that for you to try and help you as well as well as your debts if there's any debts out there possibly sometimes it's a good idea to just put it onto the mortgage as well and and do a remortgage rather than stay with your lender so there are other options out there and it really depends on each each person's circumstances
0: Okay. Would you say as well, before you get in touch with a question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a fair few topics so far and we may have touched on what you're interested in. I'm John Ellis. Thank you for joining us for episode one hundred and forty nine of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. Thank you so much once again, to Lisa Seanville of Block Property for explaining for us uh, service accommodation. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Or why not email Phil a question you can answer on a future show? His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question and Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. And please be assured we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us and please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. That way you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.